It is wonderful to be with you tonight. If you're joining us online, just wonderful, wonderful to, uh, to have you join us. And I hope tonight will be meaningful and valuable for us. So looking forward to it. Tonight is week two of the Relationship Wise series. And uh, last week we weren't able to be together in person, but we talked about why we wed. And uh, this week we will talk, be talking about the purpose of sex. So you showed up in person for the right night. That is fantastic. If you feel like I didn't know that's what we were going to talk about and I need to leave, we'll give you that grace right now. <laughs> now you're trapped. That was it. That was your moment. And uh, next week we'll be talking about singleness. And can I just encourage you, if, uh, if you are single or you have someone who is wrestling with that season of their life, whether they think of that as their temporary season or their permanent situation, encourage them to be here. There is so much sacredness and so much value in that situation in life. And I think we need to be a community that really, really affirms wherever people are at right in this season that they're at, amen? And I think even we as married people, as we think through that subject, I think we can learn and become better at loving people who are single, being better at loving where they're at in that moment of life. So I just encourage you to be a part of that. The next week, it'll be conflict. So I don't know. I don't know if we're going to do some fighting or what's going to happen. And uh, the week after that, we're going to talk a little bit about gender, but it's going to be a great next few weeks together. And uh, tonight we get to talk about the purpose of sex, which I'm very excited about. Before we get into that, just a couple things I want to say. The first is that, um, I think that we need to have a significant amount of appreciation for our lead pastors. And the reason for that, yeah, you can go ahead and applaud for them, absolutely. And the reason for that is because when we come to Christ, all of us comes to Christ from the top of our head and the way that we think to the bottom of our feet and the way that we walk and everything in between, which we'll be talking about tonight. And there are a lot of churches that just don't address those issues meaningfully. And yet it's such a vital part of what it means to be human. And sometimes we don't do that because of fear, because of awkwardness. And I just think it's wonderful that we have a lead pastor who says, it just doesn't matter if it's the right thing to do and it helps disciples become followers of Christ. That's the thing that we're going to do. Amen. So that's what we're here to do tonight, and we're just going to lean into that. But flowing out of that, what I want to say is that I am deeply aware that when we start talking about sexuality, for many, many people, all of a sudden, a significant amount of negative emotion rises to the surface. That could be guilt. It could be shame. It could be fear. It could be trauma and memory of things that have happened to us. And if I can make this case, here's the way that I want to say it. The more pain something is able to cause, the more clearly it tells us that that thing has power. And that power is intended for something good. So when something causes us that much pain, instead of, which can be our desire, leaning away from discussing a particular subject, instead we need to ask, well, there is power there, and God has put power there on purpose. How do we instead lean into it and actually recapture the purpose that God made it for, which is not to cause pain, but to bring blessing? Does that make sense? So I know it's uncomfortable. I know it can be difficult sometimes, but if we can lean into that, that would be great. So why don't we go ahead and pray, and then we're going to go ahead and get into our teaching tonight. Father, we just ask you tonight that you would do wonderful, beautiful things in our heart and in our life. Tonight, as we principally talk about what happens in our brain as we think about human sexuality and how that informs the way that we actually practice sexuality and how that is connected to you, would you help our minds be alert? Would you help us be 
self-reflective. Would you help us be in the most beautiful way, ready to repent? And by that, I just mean to turn toward the good, to turn toward the beautiful. Give us hearts that are pliable, that are always asking, how can we be more like you, experience more of you? How can we have more gospel in our lives and all the ways that you've created us to experience it? We ask you to bless our pastors. We ask you to bless uh, them, love them, care for them during this season and bless our families tonight. We ask in Christ's name and everybody said... Amen. Well, tonight, if I can, I'd like to just accomplish one thing. And uh, it's a very important thing. And what I'd like to try to accomplish is that maybe we can make a shift or we can at least begin making a shift in our understanding of what sex actually is. What is happening? Because what we believe something is, what we believe something to be, really dramatically changes our experience of the thing or the is thing that is happening to us. And if I can give you an example of that, one of my dad's favorite stories, um, probably because he taught sixth grade, is about a couple of sixth grade boys who were on their way to school, and on their way to school, they happen to find a garter snake. And on their way to school, they pick up the garter snake, they're walking with a snake, handing it to each other, laughing, having a good time with the snake, and one of the boys gets a brilliant idea. How many know sixth grade boys get no brilliant ideas? And he said, here's what we're going to do. When we get to school, we're going to take the snake and we're going to put it in the pencil drawer in the middle of the desk of our teacher so that in the middle of the day when she opens that desk, she will see the snake and hilarity will ensue. That's their idea. So they get to the classroom a little bit early. They get into the classroom. They open the drawer. They're putting the snake in. What they don't realize is the teacher had just walked into the class and saw what the two sixth grade boys were up to. So she walks back out of the class, starts class, and she, as she begins to start, she said, we're going to stand up. We're going to do the Pledge of Allegiance. I know we normally do history first, but today we're going to do science. They say the Pledge of Allegiance, and she says, the reason we're doing science first is because there is something really interesting that is happening right here in our community. It seems that there was a breeder locally of snakes they had imported from South America, and that these snakes happen to look just like normal garter snakes. Except, like the frogs in South America, they are poisonous and they don't bite the poison. It comes out of their skin, soaks through your skin, and it is fatal. So if you see a garter snake, do not, under any circumstances, pick it up. And the teacher goes on and she says, but if you do or if you have, here's what you do. You need to just, first of all, check your pulse and see if your pulse is racing. Well, immediately the two little boys, do, 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 do. They're like, oh my goodness, it's us. And said, and you're going to want to check because you'll begin to get sick to your stomach, like a pit in the bottom of your stomach. You're like, that's us, that's us. And then you'll start to get edgy and fidgety, like you can't sit still. And one of the kids jumps up and says, teacher, I'm dying. I got to get to the hospital. What happened there? What the child thought the snake was created an experience that was not true and in fact was destructive to them. What we believe is happening when we think about sex, when we engage in sex, what we think is happening directly impacts our experience of the thing itself what we believe is going on. So that's where we want to start. 
is what is sex? What is happening there? And do we need to recalibrate the way that we think about it and what it actually is meant to accomplish? And to begin to explore that, and you've heard me maybe share this before, but it's the place that we need to begin and then we will build out from there. But we need to ask a very basic philosophical question. And that philosophical question is, what is stuff? When I eat food, what is it? When I am hugged by my spouse, what is it? When my dog sits by me and sits on my feet and I feel like all is well in the world, what is going on? Is that in my imagination and it's just an experience I'm having based on evolutionary progression in the human experience? Or is this experience actually pointing to something meaningful and it is designed into the framework of what it means to be human? If I can divide that up into categories, and again, we've done this before, but we need to sit down here and then build up from there. There are three ways that we interact with stuff. There's one way where we could think of ourselves as a hedonist, and you might be familiar with that word. It just means that you believe that there isn't real value in a thing, and therefore the goal of human life becomes, how can I extract as much pleasure out of this thing? There is nothing meaningful happening here, so instead of looking at my food and genuinely experiencing it as a gift of the provision of God, savoring the flavors, understanding all of the people that God made that went into the production of that and receiving it as an act of worship, I sort of gorge myself hoping that I can get the most pleasure out of it. That's what a hedonist does. A nihilist is like a hedonist. They don't believe that there's any real thing happening in this human experience, but they're too self-aware to let themselves experience joy because they know it's all a lie. It's Ecclesiastes, vanity, vanity, all is vanity, right? So it's like, I'm just like a smart hedonist. I would enjoy it, except for the fact that I know it's all self-delusion, so I'm not going to. And they're a ton of fun to hang around, by the way, these nihilists. The interesting thing is, is that we did some surveys recently with students or with young adults, 19 to 29 years old, 18 to 29 years old. And one of the questions we asked is, has there ever been a time where you wish that sex did not exist? Over 50% said there have been times where they wish that sexuality was not a thing. What is that? That is saying, I do not perceive that there is enough value and meaning in the experience to offset the potential pain and disaster that happens when it goes wrong. It's actually a borderline nihilist position. Does that make sense? The third way is we can be a sacramentalist. And if you want a simple way to remember that, it just means this. It means that when I engage in a physical activity, something sacred is meant there. Sacrament. So the Lord's Supper, something sacred is meant by the cup and the bread. Baptism, sacrament, something sacred is meant by our going into the water upon our profession of faith and rising up out of the water in resurrection. And what we would say is that theologically, for Christians, a whole bunch of human experiences are sacramental. Not just those two things, but the eating of food, the, all of the wonderful experiences that we have, seeing the beauty of nature, all of these are sacramental because something sacred is meant there. And our question that we have to ask is, well, what is the sacred thing that is meant in human sexuality? But that might be an important place to start, is to ask ourselves whether we are, when we think about sexuality, when we think about sex proper, are we a nihilist, are we a hedonist, or are we a sacramentalist? 
And I want to give you a few questions to self-evaluate. Did everyone come here and say, I would like to be a different person when I leave? This is how we do it. We ask ourselves questions, we answer themselves to ourselves honestly, and then we respond appropriately with the Lord. So that's what we're going to do. So if we ask ourselves, am I a hedonist? Here are a few questions that we can ask ourselves. Do my continual thoughts about sex revolve around how I can maximize my own pleasure? Do I think about what I can get my spouse to do that will maximize my pleasure? Are my aspirations about sexual pleasure informed by pornography or cultural expressions or idealized versions of sexuality? And I think perhaps this is most important. Do I view a sexual experience as good or bad purely based on how much pleasure I experience? If our answer is yes, or a sequence of yeses to those, what we can perhaps say is that there is a possibility that we have some hedonist intrusion into the way that we think about our sexuality. Now, here's the good news, is that we are all in the process of becoming like Jesus. Which means that we can have these honest conversations and say, oh my goodness, I didn't know that I was allowing a non-meaningful way of thinking about sexuality to invade my sexual experience. It doesn't mean that we are immoral. It doesn't mean that we're unethical. It doesn't mean that we have somehow been unfaithful to our spouse. But what it does mean is that we, if we tra- take pleasure and we put it in the place of the meaning that's actually intended, you can't have both one of them will dominate what you're actually trying to accomplish through the thing, through the is. What about a nihilist? Well, these questions can help bring some clarity, I think, to that. Have I given up, and and by the way, I think we have most people will come to their Christian faith being by default either a nihilist or a hedonist when it comes to their thinking about sex. So am I a nihilist? Well, these questions can help. Have I given up on meaningful sexuality in my marriage? Do I look for ways to escape, ignore, or get through sex in my marriage? Do I go emotionally numb or cold or ignore how I feel about sex in our sexual relationship and marriage? If you have a yes or a sequence of yeses there, it might indicate that we have a little bit of a nihilist position. In other words, we said, there isn't enough meaning there for me to lean into the hard work to figure out how to extract it. That 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 I'm not persuaded that there's enough meaningful stuff happening there for me to have hard conversations with myself and hard conversations with my spouse about how we're engaging this activity. But what we want to become are sacramentalists. And uh, if I can maybe illustrate that using a passage, again, I have used before, but looking at it a slightly different way, that illustrates the shift that we need to make. And it's in Song of Solomon chapter 8. And in Song of Solomon chapter eight, I love it. We have these two brothers and uh, they're talking about their little sister and their little sister is just getting ready to hit puberty. And they are talking about like, how are they gonna wrestle with that when their sister hits puberty and people start wanting to marry her? And they are both like, you know what happens when somebody marries her, right? Somebody's going to want to have sex with our sister. That's what's going through their head. That's where we pick up the conversation. That's in the Bible, isn't that wild? Here are the brothers. We have a little sister. She's too young to have breasts. So, so far they're like, good, 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 good. Don't ever hit puberty, sister. What will we do for our sister if someone asks to marry her? They're in little legitimate angst about this. If she's a virgin like a wall, we will protect her with a silver tower. In other words, they're like, we want her to be non-sexual. That's what we want for her. This is in marriage, by the way. 
Then it says, but if she's promiscuous, like a swinging door, we will block her door with a cedar bar. Now, what you have right there is exactly what I just described. One brother basically says, what if she is a hedonist? She just enjoys all the pleasures that she can extract from that particular human experience. Well, they know that's not good because it implies that she may be being used or she may be using someone else or they can both be using each other. And then they say, well, the only other answer is what? Nihilism. Turn it off. Don't be involved with sexuality at all. And I love that it is the woman who interrupts that, this young woman, and she says, well, brothers, actually, if it's okay, I'd like to speak about my own body for a second. And she says, I was a virgin, like a wall, but now my breasts are like towers. I have no idea what that means. I don't know. Don't Google it. That's all I'm saying. When my lover looks, <laughs> I, thought, I thought long about it. I have no idea. I don't know. I don't know. When my lover looks at me, he is delighted with what he sees. The guy likes tower breasts. That's what it boils down to. <laughs> and I remember talking about this passage in a class at North Point. And when we read this text, one of the students asked this question. I thought it was so insightful. They said, do you think the reason that many fathers have a hard time thinking about their daughters as sexual people is because they only have two sexual possibilities for them. They can either be a hedonist and become a product, or they can become a nihilist and deny that they are a sexual person. They themselves don't have a dignified, theological, meaningful view of sex. So to imagine their daughter engaged in sex is to imagine them as an object. I thought that was an incredibly insightful question. I was a guest lecturer, I was able to give no grade, but I would have given an A plus. So that's the question we're here to ask is, if we're not hedonists and we're not nihilists, we wanna be sacramentalists, what is meant by that sacred thing? What is happening in that sacrament? As with last week, I'd like to give a theological statement and then unpack that over the course of about the next 22-ish minutes. Everyone heard me say the ish. That gives me a couple slop minutes there. Okay. Here's my statement of theological purpose. Human sexuality is designed to be a sacramental experience that teaches us about God, his desire for relationship with us, and what his character in that relationship will be. Now, this is an extension of the conversation last week. It's available online still, where Paul says in Ephesians 5 that marriage generally, and sexuality specifically, is a great mystery. And what he means by that as a mystery is a physical experience that teaches us something about our invisible relationship to God. And Paul says that marriage and sexuality play an important role in that. In fact, it's the only thing he ever calls the great mystery. So what are those purposes? What is sex good at teaching us about God? Give you four things that we're designed to learn about God through sex. Are we ready? Four. Number one, sex is designed to give us a glimpse of Eden where we were unashamed and desired as fully known people by God and each other. I don't know if you've given this any thought, but the closest you will ever get to Eden is the marriage bed. In the marriage bed, it is the only human experience that approximates the nakedness, the fully knownness, and the full acceptance that was designed to be the natural state of human beings in the Garden of Eden. It's the only place where one image of God comes to another image of God and says, as an icon of my total transparency to you, I will be physically naked and known, and I'm going to ask you to accept me and love me. 
I'm going to ask you when I am at your mercy for you to care for me. If you go back to Genesis chapter one, we'll read just verses 24 and 25, but the run up to that is you've got God in the garden and he says it's not good for the man to be alone. One image of God by itself is not enough. He needs someone to image two and he needs the image of God reflected back to him. And then you know probably the story, a deep sleep falls on Adam, a rib is taken out, woman is created, and then Adam wakes up and he says, at last! The woman is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Then we pick up 24 and 25. And it says, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother. What is the job of the father and mother? The job of the father and mother are to present a living representation to the child of what it's like to be loved by God. So you leave one missional relationship and you move into another missional relationship where now not two people are imaging God to you, but one person has adopted one person forever for the rest of their lives and said, I got one job, baby. For the rest of my life, you're not gonna hit dirt without knowing what it's like to be loved by God. He's joined to his wife and the two are united as one. Then we pick up the phrase, now the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. In sexuality, we practice appreciation of the other as they truly are. Our call in sexuality is to prove our spouse's deepest fears wrong. I think if we're honest, we all fear that if we were to be fully known, we would no longer be considered worthy of being loved. That if someone knew us as we truly are, that they would reject us. They would fire us. They wouldn't listen to us. They would abandon us. They would trade us in. They would upgrade us or betray us or reject us. In being the image of God in sexuality, we look at our spouse who is now fully known and we say to them, all of your worst fears are unfounded. You will not be forsaken by me. You will not be betrayed by me. You will not be abandoned by me. But even more importantly, I stand in God's stead as a reminder to you that you will never be forsaken, that you will never be abandoned by God. This is, by the way, as an aside, if you care, it's too late, I'm already speaking. This is why I'm not a fan of role play and dress up. Nothing says I love you more than you would be more desirable if you looked like somebody else. In sexuality, we practice personification versus objectification. You are not an object for my pleasure. You are a person to be loved. We have to make a choice whether we want sexuality to be beautiful or just bootyful. I had it in there. Couldn't decide whether I was going to say it. I did. If we allow our hearts to make the metaphorical leap, which we have to remember, that's what sacramentalism does. It says, there's a human experience happening here. What am I supposed to be learning? I have to, I have to make a metaphorical leap from what I'm experiencing to what it teaches me about God. And if I will allow that to happen, we will learn how God feels about us. We are known. The scripture says that we are naked before him. He knows us physically, emotionally, ethically, spiritually, relationally. And if we will allow our spouse to love us, allow them to express desire for us, and allow them to affirm that even with our physical, emotional, relational history, that we are still worth being loved. It should cause our hearts not only to love our spouse, but then to think that this is a glimpse of God's goodness and care for me. 
This is a picture of his willingness to come close, to be intimate with someone who may not deserve it, but who is still worth it. So number one, sex is designed to give us a glimpse of Eden when we were unashamed and desired as fully known people by God and each other. Number two, sex is designed to give us a glimpse of our covenant with God where we learn we are worth being committed to. There's an inextricable link between sexuality and fidelity to our spouse and fidelity to God. And we're trained for that in sexuality. And it's interesting because, and we'll look at a passage in a moment, but God all the time in the Old Testament slips seamlessly between the language of idolatry and adultery. And there's a simple reason for that. They both say the same thing. I have a need, I have a desire, I have something I'm wanting to accomplish. And idolatry and adultery both say, but that's okay, if you won't take care of it, I have options. Towards God, it says, I have a need to be delivered from this situation. I have an emotional need. I have a financial need. But if you don't meet it, I've got options. And adultery says, I have a sexual need. Need. No one ever died from not having sex. Sexual need. I have a sexual need. But if you don't meet my needs, if you won't let me manipulate you, if you won't let me exert my power or satiate me, I have options. They function on the same relational math. Let's read Isaiah 57, five through 10. You worship your idols with great passion beneath the oaks and under every green tree. You sacrifice your children down in the valleys among the jagged rocks and the cliffs. Your gods are the smooth stones in the valleys. You worship them with liquid offerings and grain offerings. They, not I, are your inheritance. Do you think all this makes me happy? Listen to this language. You have committed adultery on every high mountain. There you have worshiped idols. Do you see those two just linked right together? and you have been unfaithful to me. You've put pagan symbols on your doorposts and behind your doors, you have left me. And look at this language, you've climbed into bed with detestable gods. The language of idolatry and adultery are identical. You've committed yourselves to them. You have loved to look at their naked bodies. You've gone to Molech with olive oil and many perfumes, sending your agents far and wide, even to the world of the dead. You grew weary in your search, but you never gave up. Desire gave you renewed energy and you did not grow weary. But what's interesting is the inverse of this is true as well. We cannot separate how we think about people and how we think about God. And when someone is unfaithful to us, we wonder if God will also be unfaithful to us. What is the question we ask when we experience betrayal from a person? Why, God? Ah. Let's unpack that why, God. It's just another way of asking, where were you? Did you abandon me? Were you unfaithful to me? Why am I experiencing this if you are committed to me? And it's natural because we are designed to learn God's faithfulness in our sexual relationship. So it only makes sense that when it's betrayed, our trust in God that we're designed to learn in that experience also takes a hit and is deteriorated. Does that make sense? When a spouse cheats, we know and we feel intuitively that we have been traded, that we have been evaluated and we have been found wanting. And it calls into question our worth and whether we are worth being committed to by people or God. It's interesting. I can't think over the years how many people I've talked to, it's a lot. People that 
come in a moment of relational crisis where one spouse or the other has been unfaithful. It might be with another person, it might be a long-term relationship, it might be pornography. And they come and they talk, and what's fascinating, and I think insightful, is that almost always, at some point, the person who has betrayed will say something like this. I just feel so dirty. Wait a minute. Why does the person who didn't do the cheating feel dirty? They say, I I feel so cheap. Wait a minute. Why does the person who didn't do the cheating feel cheap? The reason is because we know we've been traded. And when the person looks at the other person, in fact, psychologists tell us that when, uh, this is especially true for females, not all females, but when a female is cheated on by her husband, it is often a source of relief when they find out the woman is either very wealthy or very beautiful. Why? Because if I was traded for someone, I hope at least they were up here so that I can still be here. In fact, we know that in some ways, pornography usage can actually be more detrimental to the relationship because it tells the spouse, I didn't trade you for this, I traded you for this. Not even a real person, not even a real relationship. I gave you up for that. How can that not affect someone's sense of their own desirability and therefore their sense of their desirability to God? We're designed to learn it in that relationship. For many of us, it can make us wonder whether we are worth it, not just to the spouse, but to God. We'll wonder whether God won't give up or forsake us or trade us in or abandon us or has a plan B for us when we just blow it one too many times. But when someone does commit to us, depends on us, waits on us, pursues us, is faithful to us, even though they may have options, it provides a powerful human experience for us that reminds us and and affirms and persuades our hearts that we are worth being loved and that God is not involved in a comparison game. That God loves me, full stop. There is no replacement. There's no potential of switch out or upgrade. God loves me. Number three, sex is designed to give us a glimpse of the gospel. And I apologize for moving quickly, but are, are we doing okay? Yeah, we're doing all right. You're all quiet. It's kind of serious, I guess. Maybe that's why. I'll try to bring in another breast tower joke at some point. <laughs> see if we can lighten the mood. Number three. <laughs> I don't have one, so if someone just randomly wants to say it at some point, that'd be fine. Number three. Sex is designed to give us a glimpse of the gospel where we are worth forgiving and pursuing even in our brokenness. In 1 Corinthians 11, uh, 23 through 24, this is one of my favorite little pairs of scripture. Uh, This is Paul, and he's instituting the Lord's Supper, or he's talking about the Lord's Supper. It's where we get it from. And he says this. He says, For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread, and he gave thanks for it. Then he broke it in pieces, and he says, This is my body, and I'm giving it to you. I'm giving it to you. Maybe what you haven't thought about is that in 1 Corinthians in chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7 and chapter 10 and chapter 11, the issue of sexuality pops up in every one of those. Every single one of them. 
And tucked in chapter seven is this little passage that if read wrongly can be really destructive, but I want you to read it in conjunction with what we just read in 1 Corinthians 11. In 1 Corinthians 7, three through four, it says the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's sexual needs. Notice the address is to the person who's responsible for fulfilling, not to the person who makes the other person responsible for fulfilling. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband. And the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. There is a designed echo in those two passages where there is a preaching of the gospel that happens as we receive the Lord's Supper and we receive the emblems of God's body being given. And in 1 Corinthians 7, when one spouse looks at another spouse and says, I am going to give my body for you. You who are unworthy, you who are undeserving, I'm going to do that for you. You know that every time there's an offense in a relationship, there has to be an altar. When someone is wounded, God cries justice. Their pain cries justice. And when there is an altar in the relationship because of injustice, because of pain, somebody has to get on that altar and die. And when they do, they do what Jesus did and they climb on the altar and they turn the altar into a table of communion. They turn it into something meaningful. Every time that happens, that's what Jesus did. There was injustice and and he climbed up on the altar and turned what was meant to be a place of death for us and indictment against us into a place of fellowship with us. And the altar Jesus took, I think this is so helpful, doesn't just invite us to a table where he sits at one end and we sit at the other end, but he invites us to a traditional Middle Eastern table where the two recline together on the same sofa, where we take the elements of his body, where we receive an element of Christ himself and we enjoy full fellowship. When we love sexually and meaningfully, we make a choice to get on the altar for the other person. If we wanted to find reasons not to make ourselves vulnerable to our spouse, we could all find them. Nobody in here, if we lined ourselves up, would be innocent of having harmed their spouse. A word said unkindly, a harsh look, duties left undone, maybe intense betrayal, moments of anger, whatever it is, we could all line up. There is an altar in between all of our relationships. And the question then comes for that person, is this reconcilable? And remember, it's a metaphor. The same thing happens when something comes between us and God. Is this reconcilable? And when one spouse makes the choice to say, I'm not going to punish you. I'm not going to withhold myself from you. I'm not going to manipulate you. What I'm actually going to do as an act of love and gospel is I'm going to climb up on this altar and I'm going to turn this altar into a table of fellowship. I should note that we're not talking about abuse. What we're talking about is let's say your spouse regularly is is short with you or has a habit of being on their phone too much and we feel ignored. That is an altar. It's a moment of offense. And our pain demands a sacrifice, somehow for it to be rectified and acknowledged. 
And we're either going to have to make a choice to make them pay, or we're going to have to get on the altar and say, I'm going to give my life for you. You are worth it. It doesn't negate honest communication. It doesn't negate expressing how a person's behavior impacts us, but it does negate manipulation. It does negate withholding. It does negate not effectively representing the gospel of Jesus Christ to our spouse. And we do it without guilt. We do it without compulsion or without manipulation. We invite, we invite our spouse back into the garden where we are naked and unashamed. I don't know about you, but that sounds like the gospel to me. And number four, sex is designed to give us a glimpse of communion with God where we are worth spending time with and loving. I hope that we can all appreciate that when we say, we, when we experience sexual desire, what we're not experiencing is sex itself. Let me explain what I mean by that. What we, is it okay if I use the, nor, the regular words for things? Do I have to code anything? Let's give it a try. I'm gonna say, the, I'm gonna say a word. I'm gonna watch for it. Penis. We all good? Okay, good. Okay, good. Everyone, a couple of giggles in the back. I know where the junior hires are now. Okay, good. Let's be honest about this. Nobody's all excited about a penis and a pair of breasts and a vagina. Those are icons that lead to an experience that become symbols of the experience that we long to have. We all good with that? The experience that we have through that physical exchange leads to a sequence of hormones and neurotransmitters being released in the brain, which leads to pleasure and certain emotional releases. That is what we crave. That's what we're looking for. We're not looking for the actual physical experience. If we could have that physical experience in another way, we would crave that. In fact, I don't know if you know this, sex is so important to human beings that if someone becomes paralyzed from the waist down, often a person will develop a secondary genitalia somewhere else on their body and be able to achieve orgasm by an arm or a hand or a place on their back. It's core to us. Because what we desire is all of this flood of neurotransmitters that has a real purpose to it. And I'll give you just a couple because I want to make this case. Oxytocin, for instance, makes us feel close to another person and loved. It's a trust and intimacy chemical. And when our minds desire it, what's interesting is that casual sex cannot deliver it. That we desire that sense of closeness and so a person might use pornography. They might even use their spouse. They might have a fling. But what's fascinating is that we know the more meaningful the relationship, the greater the release of oxytocin and the greater the sense of sexual fulfillment. Want to make a sex addict? Take all the meaningfulness out of their sexual relationship because they'll get all the stuff that drives them and keeps telling them there's hope to be genuinely fulfilled by that experience, but all of the meaningful personal interaction that should frame that experience makes the oxytocin just dive. And they're like an addict who just can't get quite high enough. And what they're not looking for is more high, they're looking for more meaningful relationship. There's a reason that Oxycontin is the drug of choice. It makes us feel loved and trusted and like all is well. It's fascinating to think that the one Christian religious expression, Catholicism, that puts stakes on sexuality every time because there's no contraception has led to Catholic men being the most sexually satisfied males in the United States. You know why that is? 
because every time they make love, they have to think about the other person because there's a possibility they might be making a child. It makes it a human experience rather than a pleasure experience. It moves someone from being a hedonist to at least something of a sacramentalist. The point is that what we really desire isn't a physical act, but it's an act that releases a cathedral of chemicals into our brain that are tied to desire for long-term relationship, trust, pleasure, safety, care, vulnerability, and intimacy. And these are all things we desire ultimately from God. And in this way, being loved sexually is a sacrament. It is to be done sacramentally because something sacred is meant there. And here we learn that God is, not, is, is deeply interested in us, not in using us, not in having us as a cog in his missional machinery, not in getting to an outcome or an objective, but in knowing us, spending time with us. And in sex, we teach our spouse that they're worth waiting for, they're worth caring for, they're worth listening to, they're worth nurturing, they're worth being thought of as an individual. I think this is one of the reasons that genders tick differently. It teaches us that if we really want to please each other, to listen, to care, to take time to know, and that there are no magic tricks to intimacy. There's only one way to it, and that's to communicate, that's to listen, that's to care. And God is the same, there are no tricks. He won't give us what we want without being the person that we want. And just as importantly, he doesn't want what we do. We are who he wants. So the original proposition, and we'll wrap up. Human sexuality is designed to be a sacramental experience that teaches us about God, his desire for relationship with us, and what his character will be in our relationship. So we can ask ourselves a little sequence of questions, and maybe one of these will cross your heart and feel like one that's important for you. But if I can make a suggestion The way that we engage with sexuality will not change without being intentional. And what I would encourage you to do is to think, is there one of these ways in which I know I'm either not allowing myself to be loved in a way that would reflect God, or I'm not loving in a way that would reflect God? And I know it can be awkward. I've been around this subject a minute or two. I know there are people in here who probably don't talk before or after they have sex. The lights are off. It sort of happens all under guise of, oh, frantic. And then nobody says anything. Everybody goes to sleep and you wake up in the morning pretending like nothing happened. I know. We can't grow like that. For some of us, it also happens dramatically the opposite. We are reenacting what we have seen enacted in culture. We are taking on personas that we have learned from shows or even from pornography. We're not making love to each other. We're, we're involved in a piece of cinema. Growth can't happen there either. Growth can only happen when one naked person looks at another naked person and says, my love, I have not loved you well in this way. And I want you to know that when we get into that bed, going through my head is going to be that you 
are worth it. You are worth being loved. And I'm not here to hurry. I'm not here because I have a need. I mean, sometimes we just need to grow up. Nobody ever died. I'm here because I have a desire to be loved and there's nothing wrong with that. But I'm also here because you deserve to be loved. And let's start a different conversation. Can you just give me one thing that I could do that would make you feel more valued? Let's just start there. Maybe it's as simple. All I know is if the person is giving us grace, I mean, every, for every act of sexuality is an instance of gospel. Like none of us deserve that kind of access to another person. And when I take the Lord's Supper, I don't know about you, but I, I, I just can't help. All of a sudden I just start thinking about what the Lord has done for me. I think of his grace for me. Like I, I don't deserve to be here and yet I wildly deserve to be here. I just don't know. I, I, I just can't not say thanks. Maybe it just starts there. You're done making love to your spouse and you look over and you just say, thanks for loving me. Maybe it just starts there. But God can do something beautiful, beautiful in us.